Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. From ancient mythology and religious texts to Star Trek and Harry Potter, trinities, or trios, have always been a common motif. Why is the power of three so potent, and what tropes do we tend to see? To help us delve into this subject, we have enlisted the help of an author of not one, but two brilliant fantasy trilogies, both with a central trinity of characters, Jen Williams. So Jen, for those of our listeners who don't know who you are, what you do, would you please introduce yourself? Uh, hello, uh, I'm Jen Williams. I wrote, as you said, two trilogies. Uh, the first one was the Copper Cat trilogy, um, which does indeed have a central trio of idiots. And then the second trilogy I wrote was the Winnowing Flame trilogy, which starts with the Ninth Reign. Uh, and that also has three central characters. So, yeah, I'm all about the number three, basically. Oh, uh, other stuff, I suppose I should say. I also founded Super Relaxed Fantasy Club uh, and I'm from London and uh, I like cartoons. Yeah, that's basically my bio. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't like cartoons? Yeah, I mean, uh, stupid people, basically. (laughs) So, I mean, when it comes to writing, like, do you just set out, you think, yes, I'm going to have three. Is there a reason that you always want three? Why do you think they're so useful for storytelling? Uh, well, it's I've been thinking about it. And um, I think the, probably the honest answer to begin with, with the my first trilogy, is that I, it just kind of felt like what I wanted to do. because Possibly because I can't make up my mind about which character is the main character. So... When I started planning out the Copper Promise, I naturally wanted to write about these three particular characters. And in my head, I never quite decided who was the main or the, the sort of the lead protagonist. Uh, so what I ended up with was a team of three that really worked. And I think it is always tricky to uh, kind of reverse engineer these things and talk about what your original thoughts were when you were planning a book and a series because most of the time you're making it up as you go along. Um, And I think writers uh, spend a lot of time kind of justifying what they did to make themselves sound clever. (laughs) But I think it just naturally felt like the right approach for me. And it turned out that I really enjoyed it because I think you get a naturally meaty set of interactions when you've got three characters uh, on stage. What's really interesting is you did it a second time round as well. Uh, yes. I mean, was that a, um, was that because you felt like, I mean, obviously the, the second trilogy has a really, it does have a quite a different tone to it, but it was interesting that it paralleled uh, the, the form with these, like with the three characters and their, and their way that they interacted with each other is a major part of the series, like in addition to the kind of overarching plot. So was that a conscious decision? It was. I have to totally uh, put my hand up and say, yes, I definitely, for the second trilogy, realised that that was my strength, was writing sort of interactions between these three that particularly worked for me. So it made sense to carry that on with my second trilogy. But it also meant that I had to make sure that it wasn't the exact same relationships that I was carrying over. 
which is the sort of thing that you worry about when you're writing a second um, trilogy, that you're not, you know, just making a carbon copy of the first. But definitely uh, the second time round uh, was a lot more calculated because I knew that it worked for me and that I enjoyed writing that kind of uh, complex dynamic where there's three people to get on each other's nerves, basically. So I definitely uh, went into the Winnowing Flame trilogy knowing that that was what I was going to do this time. Well, as a ghostwriter, I've written quite a few romance novels. And the key with romance is that you have your two main characters and basically one has a strength which balances out the other one's weakness and so on. So they're always very complementary. It's basically, for romance, it's just straightforward writing two opposing characters with enough bits joining them to um, to make it readable and to make it believable so when it comes to trios you can't necessarily do that because you know you, you can't balance out one character strength with another character do you kind of have to share them all out do you how do you go about deciding which characteristic is going to annoy which person and which one's going to have a strength that's backed up by somebody else's weakness and so on that's really interesting I don't think I've ever thought of it that way um I think I tend to I suppose come up with characters more from the idea of I build them separately first, if that makes sense. Yeah. So they have, yeah, because I think naturally when you put people together, if they're different enough, then they will spark off of each other, you know? So I think with the, particularly with the Winnowing Flame trilogy, I did quite deliberately introduce them separately actually in the book. So you spend a bit of time with each character before they meet up, you know? And I think kind of, Almost psychologically, that's how I approach the book. Because like we, I get these fully formed people, and then I put them together and see what happens. Possibly because I'm more of a uh, make it up as you go along writer than a planner. You're uh, a gardener, not an architect. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, the I have best good, kind. The best kind. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I have a very loose idea of where the book's going, but uh, I'm very much more of a, you know, you create these characters, you wind them up. You put them together and then you see what happens kind of person. And I think that often I feel like a book's working when I realise that I've got that right. Well, this might be a good segue into our next question, which was um, what is the difference between a central trinity of protagonists versus a fractured narrative following several singular protagonists? It's really very specific with three people, like the kind of Harry Ron Hermione effect, um, where, you know, their personalities begin to impact on the wider plot and their friends around them. So I think there's that. And then the, the fractured narrative is more to do with many people in their own kind of trajectory. And while they... Um, interact with the people kind of close to them I don't think that their trajectory like kind of influences the wider plot in quite the same way I think it's a, a narrower focus so perhaps if uh, in a way the trio effect is when the trio's specific storyline is driving the plot as opposed to multiple people driving it forward yeah in a way although you know I mean I uh, one of the fun things to, to be able to do with a, a trio when you have three central uh, protagonists is that you can send them off in different directions and different places and then bring them back together again, which I kind of, I try to do in each book so that you get, you know, like a really um, crass way. I want you to see as much of the world as possible so I can send them off to different bits of the world and then kind of gather them back in. Obviously, I do have more 
POV characters than just those three. More than I should have probably by the end of the Winnering Flame trilogy. I was pulling my hair out um, over how many fucking POV characters I had. But as it is as as we were just saying, it's a slightly different thing when you've got three characters who are driving things forward together. I suppose. And even when they're separate, you can feel the bonds kind of mm. like gluing them together. Like even when you have set, sent them off into completely different. I mean, like I'm thinking of um, Sebastian in like your first trilogy, um, and and how and I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't read it, but that he ends up going very far away, yeah. <laughs> and yet I never felt that he was ever not a part, like of of yeah. their kind of core friendship group. Like he was always really important, and it I don't know, and I don't think you get that sense of strong kind of mutual bond from a bigger cast book like you know the big wheel of time epics and stuff where there's like many many characters and yeah yeah they're all very important but they don't have that kind of close-knit um trinity i think you're right actually that might be it is that they're that's what really defines it is this the bond between those three is really what the whole book is about um the whole trilogy is about I would suggest there's also an element of what story you're trying to, to tell and what flaws you're trying to address in the characters. So I'm, I'm going to t- use two rather diverse um, examples. The first one being the Star Wars trilogy with Han, Luke and Leia, and the second one being Shaun of the Dead with Shaun, Liz and Ed. And just thinking about sending characters off into the, the great wide world to learn things. In Star Wars, you obviously have them splitting up for various different reasons, most notably Luke disappearing off to learn to become a Jedi and, and so on. And and then they come back together again and they've, they've all slightly changed. So the fun in that is kind of seeing how they were in the first one uh, and then seeing how they've all changed and how they come together and work as a team in the final one. But I kind of feel that in Shaun of the Dead, the whole point is that Sean has to learn to get on with the people around him. That is his journey. It's not to become a Jedi or not even to kill zombies. The whole point is how he changes as a character and learns to cope with the world around him. And that just wouldn't work if you split them all up because it's a very um, character-focused storyline they've got, whereas in things like Star Wars or in, in Jens or Lucy's, there's much more to explore. And that's kind of, I think, one of the main differences that depends on whether it's going to be a a trinity staying together or one that divides up and goes and has their own adventures. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, really? Because particularly in Star Wars, uh, you have that central trio. And I was trying to think of like, I mean, there are three main characters, but Luke's kind of the main, main character. Like in Harry Potter, it's Harry, Hermione and Ron. And Harry's kind of the main, main character. And it tends to be the one who has the most to learn or find out. I think so Luke obviously has to leave Tatooine and he has to become a Jedi and you know find out about his dad and all of that nonsense and obviously Harry also has to find out he's a wizard and he has to find out about his dad and all that nonsense so I think you you end up with this in terms of the other characters it's slightly unfortunate that they get relegated to love interest or advisor I suppose or comedy uh, sidekick in Ron's case I feel everyone judging me now for being mean about Ron. Sorry. Would you agree then, you know, if you're thinking about Widrin, would you think that that is really her trilogy then? If you had to pick one of the characters to be the main character, it really is her, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, that, that, uh, interestingly, though, when I wrote the Copper 
promise I did genuinely think of the three of them as being all the main character. But um, when you look at it, I mean, to be fair, Frith's story is the one that really kicks everything off. And Sebastian has the most complicated and difficult character journey. Whereas Widrin actually doesn't really change. <laughs> over That's really the interesting. Yeah. She kind I mean, she becomes more uh, heroic and less mercenary over the course of three books, which doesn't really change that much. Um, and yet everybody, when uh, when I was getting feedback on The Copper Promise, immediately identifies Widrin as the main character. There's never any question about it, you know. Um, so definitely readers think she's the main character. Um, and maybe it's because she is the, like, the, I don't know how to describe it, probably the strongest or the character that already knows herself the best, if that makes sense. Um, similar to the Winnowing Flame trilogy in that, Vintage tends to be picked out as the main character, and she again is the character who changes the least over the three books because she's already pretty perfect. <laughs> well, when I was thinking about Trinities for my own works in progress, I wrote down um, three sections and I tried to fit all the Trinities I knew into roles. And it's obviously one of these exercises that's almost pointless because every Trinity is slightly different and you're going to get um, things that are slightly out of it. But I, I identified the three cores as the coming of age, which would be Luke or Neo, or if you take Pirates of the Caribbean, it was Will Turner. Then you have the authority figure, who would be Leia or Elizabeth Swan or Morpheus. And then you have the rogue figure, which would be Han or Jack Sparrow or Trinity. And I think it kind of works in a good a good way. And it's there is an element of the coming of ages as um, Jen said, it is the one that kicks it all off. So Frith would very much be the coming-of-age character within Copper Cat, I would say. Um, and Widrin would be the rogue. And it, so it does seem to be that although the coming-of-age might be the one that kicks it all off and is the central character, how many people love Jack Sparrow and Han Solo and Widrin? It just goes to show that even though the main character changes the most, is theoretically the coming-of-age one, it's usually the rogue that steals people's hearts because they're just so much fun, particularly when they're paired with an authority figure like Leia or Elizabeth Swan or, I suppose, um, Sebastian in Jen's case. And you've got all that conflict and tension and it's just it's just such a fun dynamic to read or watch, I think. Yeah, I think that's, a re- that's really interesting, actually. I've not thought of that, but you're, I think you're completely right. People definitely... Uh, from my own work, latch onto Widrin as being the really fun one, you know. Uh, and it, it, I get like everyone telling me that Widrin is great, but I, in a separate way, I get messages from people saying that they, you know, really connected to Sebastian's journey or um, they really felt for Thrift or they wanted to stab him in the face. It's always one of those. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, Frith. I kind of feel sorry for him. He had so much go wrong for him, bless him. <laughs> yeah, but who doesn't love a rogue? You're exactly right. And um, that's what I was thinking about in Star Wars. You know, you, as you say, you have the authority figure who's very competent, which is Leia. And then you have Han, which is a great rogue, but also really deeply incompetent. Like, <laughs> never really does. <laughs> that's a very and, good point, actually. Yeah. And there's nothing that really goes right with Han. He's supposed to be this really cool, amazing you know smuggler and stuff but actually just spends the whole trilogy cocking things up but i think that just makes him more relatable i suppose you could also say the same about the others i have on my rogue list which is um jack sparrow and i had venkman down from um 
Ghostbusters and Ed as well from Shaun of the Dead, going back to that. There's always, you know, the Rogue is just, just a fun one, but they're kind of fun because they are reckless and they don't care. And it's going back to that issue I had about um, earlier on about romance, about balancing out the Rogue with the authority figure. So that's kind of where their fun bit comes in. Um, and they obviously both help the coming of age, whoever that happens to be. But the Rogue and the authority figure are always going to clash. And, you know, the, the list of authority figures I had were, they were all good characters. I mean, who doesn't love Leia? She's amazing. But, you know, if I had to go out and have dinner with someone and have a conversation over a cocktail, I think I'd probably choose Han because he just sounds like he'd have much better stories. Um, <laughs> but because he's always getting himself into scrapes and part of the charm of the rogue is that they can always get themselves out again. A bit like Jack Sparrow, he's just ridiculously incompetent and yet somehow always wins through. And there's something... It's almost like the underdog effect, really, isn't it? There's sort of this charm that they're just so useless, and yet you're still kind of rooting for them. I think you've just basically kind of answered one of our, our points, which was, you know, talking about um, how often does the internal conflict of the Trinity become the focus of the drama? We're so into talking about, oh, you know, and I really love the rogue character, and I love how they interact with... And then that's kind of eclipses like the rest of the story i mean like i think harry potter is a great example you know the the whole pitfalls of the of harry hermione and ron's relationship with each other um is like the one of the driving forces of the story and you know very often you're more interested in you know ron having the emotional range of a teaspoon than you are in what voldemort's up to <laughs> yeah that's absolutely what i remember about the harry potter books you know is their relationship to each other and their friendship and uh you know i suppose all of the shipping wars of a certain period on the internet and stuff where i don't necessarily remember that much about you know the separate events of each book well i think the relationships between characters is you know it's it's what really makes you love a story and i think that's something that um Roddenberry picked up on with Star Trek because then you had like Kirk, Spock and McCoy another wonderful trio um, in original series but then when it came to doing Next Gen he made like a rule about um, having a certain like I don't know I can't remember exactly but it was like a, a, most of the conflict had to be between the characters on the ship because it wasn't meant to be just about you know finding aliens and others it was supposed to be about the fact that no matter where you are, it's how you treat people around you and, and how you interact with people and that sort of thing that that kind of creates the drama. Um, and, you know, I'd love Next Gen. And, oh, I, mean, I love it. So I think there's definitely something to be said for, you know, the, that kind of interaction between three characters. But I think also, for me, the, th the three character thing works so well because I, just like in my social life, I don't like that... Um, you know, when you, you get stuck in a kind of echo chamber. And when you have three key characters who you can you know, love all three of them, but they can come at things in very different ways so that it means that you can actually look at an issue without being, you know, proselytizing or really overbearing with it because you can explore different ideas on, and how to address an issue from multiple points of view. And I think that that's a really nice thing about having... A, a trinity of characters also that's a very sort of star trek viewpoint isn't it um yeah, yes you mean. can tell what i grew up watching <laughs> <laughs> but that's lovely and i i didn't realize that about next gen um about roddenberry you know insisting on that level of character drama uh and that's lovely because you know 
Um, I, I really love Next Gen. I grew up on it as well. Um, but it is one of those things, isn't it, that we talk about now um, with Next Gen being quite a 90s programme and actually the whole ensemble of Next Gen get on really well, you know? Like, they, <laughs> you know, there's the occasional raised eyebrow from Picard and stuff, but generally speaking, it's a family on board uh, a big starship um and i remember when they when voyager came out the whole uh, pitch of that was that they wouldn't be a family uh and that there would be a lot more conflict between them um because they were partly uh, was it the maquis the um terrorist uh, organization mm-hmm. and everything was going to be part of the crew and it'd all be a bit more um tricky and um thorny than it has been with like things like next gen but as it happened, it didn't really quite work out that way. But I do remember watching, um, sorry, I'm banging on about ensemble casts now, which is not really the topic, but I remember when Farscape came out and that felt like much more of a shock when you've grown up watching um, Next Generation where everyone kind of gets on and everyone's sort of quite cosy. And then you have Farscape where, you know, everyone's beating each other up on the on the bridge when they first meet and stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, where I'm going with that but (laughs) (laughs) well we can talk about shows we love I mean that's you know part of this podcast we just love this stuff so it does tie into the idea of uh being you know drama being quite a lot really about character relationships rather than plot when it comes to trinities or trios you know we've kind of mentioned um charlotte's i guess um view of it with the rogue and so on um but there's also there are other kinds of trinities that we see time and time again so one that i came across is beauty brains and brawn um <laughs> which i quite liked <laughs> there's some good examples of it too so things like you know i mean charmed how we've not mentioned charmed yet is amazing um <laughs> you've got charlie's angels again you've got even orphan black kind of fits into that um but then you've also got things like just the female trinities where you have maiden, mother, crone. Um. It's interesting when you said uh, maiden, mother, crone, the first thing that I think of is um, the Discworld books, obviously, where uh, <laughs> where Terry Pratchett quite literally took that trio, you know, and um, made uh, Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og and Magrat. And I, I, I think you've, you've already done an episode about that, haven't you? Of Maiden, Mother and Crone, yes, we, yeah. we are saving up to do a, a Terry Pratchett one. We're uh, was reading hard for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's one of my favourite trios of all time. Um, I think it just, quite aside from the whole Maiden, Mother, Crone thing, it's just that thing of putting three personalities together that are really, each one is very complex uh, and interesting, and then you put them together and it's just all sorts of... Um, hilarious mayhem basically i think the charm of pratchett is that he takes the maiden mother crone which is very you know distinctive and very stereotypical and he sort of turns it on its head because you have got granny weatherwax who is the crone and is clearly very unlikable but is also incredibly competent and incredibly powerful and at times touchingly generous um and thoughtful and you know not necessarily something you would associate with the crone Sorry, I keep forgetting you can't see air quotes on podcasts. And then you've got Nanny Og, who is the mother, who is just so into sex and men, which you, I mean, we discussed <laughs> this on previous podcasts, that you you have a kid and suddenly that's it, you're the mother and you have no outside 
relationships or, or fun or anything like that and you inevitably die and stuff so yeah Pratchett's taken it and kind of turned it on its head although they represented something that was stereotypically female the, the stages of female life every one was very different and the opposite to what you would think of as a stereotypical maiden or mother or crone and I just think it's just amazing and like Jan I could read it for hours <laughs> yeah and in fact that uh, I think he makes a point a few times of describing Granny Weatherwax as not looking like a crone. I mean, she's not wrinkly or decrepit looking at all. She's like, you know, a strapping handsome woman as well, which is great. And I love, uh, obviously I love Nanny Og and her appetites. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that they're all genius creations basically. So I was thinking of the idea of, you know, when there's a, a woman in a Trinity they do often take on this role of being the conscience or the authority figure. I mean, I'm thinking of Hermione. Uh, I'm thinking of Katara in Avatar. Um, what's really interesting uh, about that is the, particularly with the Avatar example, is they kind of reverse it when they do Korra because we were thinking about the ideas of like the chosen one and how women react to the chosen one and how Hermione's kind of always in in a way I feel like Hermione gets a bit of a raw deal in yeah. Harry Potter because I feel like she does all of the hard work and yeah. Harry's the chosen one <laughs> and she basically gets them out of every situation but what's interesting with Korra is that this is a female chosen one and that's something that we don't see as often and you know, that raises more interesting questions of kind of who takes on the role of advisor in that series. Mm. No, that's, um, that's an interesting point. I always feel like uh, talking about Hermione, she essentially, she's the only competent one of the three. Uh, and I, I think, if you know, there's that thing where if they'd actually listened to Hermione, like every book would be half as long because they <laughs> sorted everything out. But yeah, I was just—I haven't watched uh, Legend of Korra for a while, so I'm now trying to like remember, like because the, obviously there's Korra and the two boys. But I don't think either of them were particularly the advisor figure, were they? No, I don't think so. But then Asami arrives on the scene, and I think like she's her—the dynamic that she adds to the group is really interesting because she is often more of the responsible one. Yeah. In a way, I feel like her uh, expertise with technology is a kind of manifestation of that. The fact that, you know, the others run around almost like kids with their magic powers. And she's like, you know, I had to grow up in a world where people have the magic powers and I don't. And so this is what I've done to make the best of that situation. And I felt like that's quite that's more of a kind of adult role kind yeah. of in the group. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because I think Avatar does a really good job in both series of making the non-magical uh, characters almost the more interesting ones. Um, so let's yeah. in the first series uh, is, you know, starts off as comedy relief, basically, and then gradually becomes, you know, like a really clever guy uh, with his own skills and stuff. Um, but that's uh, just an example, really, of how great Avatar is generally at character development, I think. Mm -hmm. But then you have stuff like Buffy, which actually comments very directly on that kind of thing where you have Xander talking about he's how he's like completely useless to the group and are all around him are these really powerful women and he cannot add anything to what they're doing you know Willow's a powerful witch Buffy's the slayer 
you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and he's like, well, what, what is my use? What, what do I add to this group? And he kind of, you know, again, he was very much the, the comic foil, at least to begin with. And by the end he does, he kind of does become a conscience of the group. Well, I did have two ideas about why this might have been the case. And I'm thinking about obviously past writings rather than today, because you get so many different um, trinities and books today, like Jen's one, which have excellent female characters in a variety of roles. Um, but there was one idea that maybe there could be something Freudian in it and a mother fixation. And if you're a male writer wanting to write a, a trinity and you go, well, I've got to have one of them as a woman, which one is it more likely to be? Oh, you know, and sticking to the authority figure. But even putting that to one side and saying that was ridiculous, I would say there's an element of stereotypes here. If you were a writer looking at the um, at the three categories that I mentioned about coming of age, authority and rogue, coming of age indicates that, as Jen said previously, it does that does seem to be the story that the sorry the character that drives the story forward and because women haven't been around a lot in that kind of role people are reluctant to do it and I also think there's an element of the authority and the rogue often help the coming of age to get where they need to be so the idea of two men helping one woman to get somewhere is probably completely alien to so many people and you can't you could have women as the rogue and there are obviously you know some excellent examples but generally that's kind of seen as the the recklessness it's not really ever attributed to women within writing in a broader sense it's much more natural for the the woman within it to have an authority um to be the one who is the strategist the conscience because that's generally where women have been in a wider setting in either in groups or we've got like the hero going off on his quest and his his father's going go and kill the dragon and his mother's going well have you got an extra pair of socks (laughs) so based on that kind of background you've then it's just natural for the the woman to slot into the authority role uh so I don't know. It's it's difficult to say why it has happened this way, but I do think there are some possible explanations, and um, depending on the individual writers. But hopefully, I'd love to see a coming of age one with a woman with you know the authority and the road both helping her out. But uh, unless my co-hosts know of any, I can't think of any to hand at the moment. I'd, I mean, you could maybe make a case for Hunger Games because Gail would be the rogue. I don't know if Peter's. Fine. Yeah, Peter's kind of the the conscience. So if we say conscience rather than necessarily authority figure, that could work. That's a book by a woman as well, isn't it? Um, yes, it is. <laughs> there is that, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely, when I when I was planning the Copper Promise, I quite consciously decided that I wanted the rogue to be a woman because I felt like I hardly ever saw that. Um, it was never the female character that had the funny lines or got to be, as you say, reckless or causing trouble for everyone else. Um, so I felt like that, that, that it's certainly in fantasy books anyway, I felt like I hadn't really seen that. And I personally think you've created one of the most fun and memorable rogue characters ever, relevant of, of gender. <laughs> She's just great. I love her. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what about male trinities? Because while, you know, okay, so we've talked about um, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, there are a couple of male ones, but there are, I don't know, there seem to be fewer all-male ones than, like, all-female ones. And when I was looking up um, the beauty, brains, and brawn trope, the kind of one of the few male examples, like, entirely male, uh, was actually from Princess Bride, which I thought was quite fun. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> you have Inigo Montoya as obviously the beauty, the beautiful Spanish man. Uh, <laughs> Vizzini, because he is so clever. Uh, so so very, very clever. And Fezzik is the brawn. And I thought that was cute. Um, <laughs> but, you know, where I think if we, we look back at mythology and so on, you know, there's a lot of um, female trinities happening. We've got, um, you know, the Furies, the Fates and so on. And you have these maiden mother crone kinds of tropes. But how come there aren't many all three men together? What's with that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it, you know, it's uh, that whole kind of no homo thing. If you get three men together for too long, it upsets people or something. Um, actually, when you said the the beauty brains and brawn thing, I was trying to think of other male trinities, and I thought of supernatural. Uh, <gasps> but which one is the beauty? Well, you know, that's it, isn't it? Which one? I don't know. Maybe. No. <laughs> Mind you, thinking about them, which one's the brains? To be honest, <laughs> sorry, Supernatural, I do love you, but uh, but still. <laughs> well, I found a, a few more online. So I had, um, sorry, Megan, we had Lord of the Rings with Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, which again would probably fit in with Beauty, Brains, and Brawn. Um, would possibly fit in with Coming of Age, Authority, and Rogue as well. So Tolkien, as ever, proving that he's got everything covered. A Three Musketeers and Ghostbusters were two that I came across. And the reason I mention them in one go is because in The Three Musketeers, that's almost like a trinity, but there's four of them. And in Ghostbusters, you have that you start off with the trinity and then you kind of um, get the extra person coming along as well. Um, and it sort of, it does seem to work. The extra person slots in. Well, that's interesting, actually, when you're uh, talking about Ghostbusters, uh the new Ghostbusters with the um, the female cast, um, the cat I've forgotten everyone's name, <laughs> but the character uh, who's a subway worker who comes into it, yes, uh, the fourth Ghostbuster, and the, by the end of the film, she is a much more integrated member of the team, and it's one of the reasons that I really love the new Ghostbusters is because it's a much warmer uh, film in terms of by the end of it, they're all close friends. I mean, I love the original Ghostbusters, but I think the new one uh, does make more of an effort to make them uh, that kind of found family team thing by the end. Absolutely. I thoroughly agree with that because I, I love the new movie as much as I love the old ones. I think they've done it really well. I, I, we could do a whole extra episode on the comparison of the Ghostbusters. But you're right. By the end of the film, the Winston-esque character has been amalgamated into the group and they do harmonise a lot more and it just felt more cohesive and I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that women generally go around in groups whereas men it's always like you know every man is an island kind of thing and you can only kind of really bond with someone if you go through something really terrible with them and or you know the buddy movies you have whereas it's just kind of natural and a group of women getting together and you go yeah it's fair enough that's what they do all the time. <laughs> yeah and I think uh, maybe that's the point is that the original Ghostbusters isn't really a film about friendship so much because it's got, you know, um, Venkman trying to get off with the Sigourney Weaver character. Or there's kind of like a rom-com side uh, plot to it and stuff. And although they're obviously friends, that's not really the point of the film. Whereas I think the new Ghostbusters is very much about two friends who've fallen out, getting back together and forming this sort of close-knit group with uh, the other two as well 
I have to say all the lists I found of the best trinities in literature and film all had Alvin and the Chipmunks in there somewhere. <gasps> I was so. just about to say Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> I'd have to rewatch that in Don't. quite a lot of depth to be able to comment, but it would be interesting to have a look and see what Alvin and the Chipmunks and whatever they were called in the Chipettes, you know, the female tri- uh, trinity, how they balanced out and how they interacted and the differences between them. It, I bet that'd make quite interesting reading. <laughs> Sorry, interesting watching if we wanted to devote that amount of time to Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> I think I probably would. That's the terrible thing. I don't know. I was thinking about um, animation, uh, particularly because, Jen, you, you mentioned you like <laughs> cartoons. Um, and I was just thinking, because I watch a lot of cartoons, and I was thinking about some of the female trinities that you get in that, like Gravity Falls, where you've got Mabel and her two friends, um, Candy and Grenda. Grenda's great. Uh, or Steven Universe, which, like, the show's about Steven, but then, like, the three women are the ones with the actual power, so Garnet, Pearl, and Amethyst. Um, but it's interesting, then, that it's the really powerful, incredible women are kind of playing second fiddle to Steven. Not to say that, like, I love that show, but it, it's interesting when you look at it that way. And I was also thinking about Phineas and Ferb with um, Phineas, Ferb, and Candace. This Candace kind of makes the the three um but obviously she's well she's always at odds with the two of them so that that's you know that's interesting that the the female character of the trinity there is actually constantly trying to break it apart (laughs) which she's like the yoko ono of phineas and (laughs) ferb it's yeah it's interesting (laughs) yeah it's like it's it's um talking about steven universe the three uh female characters in that the essential female characters I almost feel like that's a great example of what I was talking about earlier where you form three very distinct characters and then chuck them together and they have great interactions you know so you have uh Garnet's the the kind of the muscle isn't she she's the um the really strong and silent one and Pearl is the sort of really finicky touchy one um and the other one is uh, much more like the the i suppose the rogue character who causes trouble and stuff um so i kind of yes, feel like you yeah. could have a cartoon with those three by themselves like that would be equally entertaining um to me maybe only <laughs> no no i uh, i mean yeah i think they're great but then again the one that ends up kind of having the story revolve around them is the one who's got the coming of age stuff which is steven yeah yeah, yeah it seems to come back to that and I do um, like Stephen as a male character, I have to say, because he's so open to learning. You know, he doesn't have mm. any kind of show nonsense going on. And, you know, he's uh, just a really, I don't know, just an accessible, likable little kid. Yeah. I also love his dad. <laughs> oh, yeah, his dad's so good. Picking on something that we just mentioned in passing about fracturing trinities, like, has anyone ever encountered Trinities as antagonists or villains? Because I often feel like we, we've been speaking about how people in the Trinity, you know, like there's the advisor and there's the rogue. And, but generally, they kind of help each other out or they, they go through an adventure. They fight the bad guys together. Um, but what if the Trinity was the bad guys? Like, I feel lots of villains are villainous because they're alone and they, they they sit in their like mountain of doom and they plot the destruction and they don't have any friends they only have you know subordinates who they can just toss into lava pits if they don't do their jobs right so like i i was really struggling to 
think of examples where, you know, there are villains that help each other out. Okay. At the risk of making this podcast basically become the Avatar The Last Airbender fan club, um, what about Azula? Azula, Tylee and May. Well, they're not really that villainous, are they? I mean, Azula is. <laughs> and she, you know, for, for most of it, they're her backup. They're the three of them together. It's actually quite a good example because she doesn't push either of them into a pit of lava, which she could have done. <laughs> <laughs> so there must be some affection. I think that, that uh, Avatar is a great example of uh, of making your villains interesting and complex, actually, because, uh, you know, I mean, they were definitely like, I mean, Zuko is a, a baddie at the beginning as well. Um, and what they do with Azula and her two henchwomen is make them really complicated and understandable. So if they get so understandable, they're no longer baddies, you know? That's actually a really interesting point that Jen made, because when I made the list of antagonists or villains that I had as trinities, it was interesting how many of them either came good at the end or ended up inadvertently helping the hero. So we spoke earlier about Vizini, Fezzik and Inigo. And obviously Vizini ends up being, sorry, spoilers, Vizini ends up dead and the other two go on to help the hero. Um randomly I picked up on one that was the trio in Casper the film with the lovely Bill Pullman and they're not really the main villains but they are kind of like antagonists within it um there's also the three witches in Macbeth who again not the main villains but kind of sidestepped and sort of helped the hero at the same time as kind of being bad and, and unliked my favorite one was the three hyenas in The Lion King, who were obviously really vicious and horrible and <laughs> once again have our idea of the uh, the two guys and one girl. And although they're really horrible and create terrible problems for the protagonist at the beginning, by the end they're actually the one that takes down the villain himself. Um, and I thought that was that was a really interesting trinity there. And they're, they're still villainous at the end and they're still incredibly selfish and they haven't changed or developed as characters throughout it. But just circumstances or whatever you want to say, maybe Simba's um, cunning or Scar's pride ends up with them turning on the main antagonist. And they're actually the one who bring him down rather than Simba. And then the other one I I thought of that I read about was um, might be a bit obscure. For those who've seen um, A Nightmare Before Christmas by Tim Burton, there's Lock, Shock and Barrel, the three little kids who kind of, again, they aren't the main villain, but they do assist the villain to capture the main protagonist and generally not very nice but at the end they're not so much forgiven they're just kind of they're just seen as naughty children and they kind of get away with it while the main villain obviously gets gets killed yeah i guess you you kind of you can only really have ultimately one big bad so your kind of side hench people have to either kind of fall away, be killed, or be redeemed in some way. Otherwise, or, or unless, you know, you have like a more video game approach where you have to defeat each uh, henchman before you get to the main big bad. But I think that's kind of, that's almost like a fallout of having to just concentrate on the one villain in the end. Oddly, I was just, I was just trying to think of Trinity bad guys or like trios of bad guys. And all I can think of is duos, so like Team Rocket. And, um, oh, Team Rocket. Team Rocket. Sorry. <laughs> and the uh, uh, the brother and sister team from uh, the Dragon Prince, who are 
like oh, great example team rocket and i love them um you you were talking about all these uh villainous trios but you left out the villainous trio that literally calls themselves the trio from buffy oh my god that's so i can't believe i forgot about them Yay! oh my god this is a perfect How example I'm not a Buffy. I'm not a Buffy person. I'm afraid. Um, <gasps> no, I'm sorry. It's my turn to gasp. <sighs> well, all the first few seasons of it. it are the trio the like the three nerdy guys? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, okay. I might have seen. Uh, I might have seen that bit. <laughs> no, they're well, really interesting I... actually because they are like the big bad after Buffy's basically fought and killed all the other big bads. <laughs> <laughs> like perhaps it's saying that like the real big bads are her fellow humans which i always thought was quite you know subtle and cool <laughs> when you said the trio and my brain went through it what i came up with was angel drew and spike who form a trinity or a trio at one point because you true. also have the very the very strong relationship between spike and drew for is it season two i think maybe yeah. even to season three and then Angel joins them, and the whole fun of that is seeing how they are, on the one hand, a trio, but at the other, ha- other time, are also kind of undermining each other and trying to use up and change their roles. I do like the idea of looking at uh, Spike and Angel and Drew, because then you've also got the very Freudian aspects of the fact that, you know, all the siring and the sleeping with your sire and all sorts of things going on there. I think that's a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> always a good place to stop. Yeah, the really creepy bit. <laughs> so it's been really nice to have you on, Jen. No, it's been brilliant. It's been fun. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, it's been lovely to chat to all of you. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to Vintage because, like, oh yeah, oh yeah, old woman and protagonist and just kickass. Yeah, totally. Well, she's she's my Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's definitely the most competent of the trio. You know, she is the. <laughs> the authority figure uh, and the competent one and basically the only one that's any use of the three of them really yeah she's pretty great i think we can just accept that we like pretty much all of jen we've got all of jen's characters covered in love between all three of us oh <laughs> that's very sweet covered in love sounded better in my head than when it came <laughs> up my it was a little bit weird it's fine <laughs> Whether a trio of characters is used to provide a variety of viewpoints for increasing the dramatic tension or to represent three archetypal personalities, there's no denying they work. It will come as no surprise to listeners of this podcast that women seem to come off worst in these scenarios. Playing the role of Buzzkill, who is actually the most intelligent and capable member of the group despite getting none of the credit, or all-female trinities where women are seen as only maid, mother or crone. Whatever their faults... Trinities remain powerful, archetypal, storytelling tools, ones which for better or worse have defined the roles women play. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.